Because of time, we'll not get through probably the whole message. I say that because I don't want you looking. Ooh. Mission Impossible. Actually, I have found that this, is, this been, has been on the docket for literally four weeks, I think. I was wondering if we'd ever get to it. I will say this about Nehemiah 3. Some people don't even consider it important. When uh, Charles Swindoll wrote his commentary on Nehemiah, he completely skipped Nehemiah 3. I was like, turn and turn and turn. Like, where is it? It's not there. Some people wouldn't even consider it important, I guess. I don't know. I, I have found it to be one of the most enjoyable and most uh, thought-provoking chapters that I've studied so far in the book of Nehemiah. Because it has been a few weeks, um, I'd like to just kind of recap. We looked at Nehemiah the man. We won't recap him. But in chapter 2, we find out some things that have prepared this moment. Because if you don't know what's prepared this moment, you'll just kind of go in and say, oh, they, they built the wall. Well, that wall was an impossible task. And we've gone over that before because of history, because of previous failure, because of the enemies that were around. If you'd asked anybody around there, they would have said, no, mission impossible. But as the title says, how to accomplish that? How do we accomplish that? And so these are some of the things that we've looked at in chapter 2. We're not even going to chapter 1, but in chapter 2, we find some things about Nehemiah that he has done before he gets to chapter 3. He patiently waited for God's timing. Now, for that particular one, we do have to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and realize between 1-1 and 2-1, there's about a four- to five-month gap. So he was patient. You want to see a project happen in your life? Be patient. Wait on God's timing. He also established a reasonable and attainable goal. I mean, if you go to, again, if you're in chapter 2, we'll just be, a few of these I'll, I'll mention. Uh, verse 5, it says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That was a reasonable goal. It's an attainable goal. Now, it's an impossible goal because of some of the other things that had happened. But as far as the wall itself, it was attainable. He had a sense of mission. We just read that. He was willing to get involved because he said, let me, (laughs) okay? I'm going to be part of it that I may rebuild it. By the way, when he said that, he's not saying he's going to rebuild every piece. But I might be the leader. Uh, He arranged his priorities in order to accomplish his goals. If you go to chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 7. We're always going to be in chapter 2. It says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond, and and also, verse 8, to a letter to Asaph, the the keeper of the king's forest. But the point is, uh, he was able to... um, arrange his priorities in order to accomplish his goals. He was going to go, and he had started figuring out all the things that needed to happen from where he was, Susa, hundreds of miles away, go back to Jerusalem, and and he was uh, figuring out um, how to actually accomplish it. He showed respect to his superiors, obviously, when he went before the king, if the Lord, I mean, if the king pleases. Uh, He prayed at crucial times. You see this. Thirteen times in the book of Nehemiah, ending with the final verse, he's praying. He prays at crucial times. It shows his dependence on him. He made this, his request with tack and graciousness. And again, we've read that. 
as he approached the king, as he approached the Asaph, as he approached the, uh, the, the rulers, you see respect. He was well prepared and thought of his needs in advance. Again, asked for letters. He went through proper channels, went to the king, went to the rulers. He took time. When he finally arrived in Jerusalem, he took three days to rest, to pray, assuming, and, and to plan. But he took time. Sometimes we get a, a thought in our head and uh, something God wants us to do and we just, you know, out of the gate. And yet when he ended up, because, you know, that would have been a, a, quite a few months travel. By the time he got to Jerusalem, he was tired, probably exhausted, and he took time. Um, he investigated the situation firsthand. If you go to verses 12 to 15, once he takes his three days to recoup, uh, then he actually goes out at night, nobody else knows, and he literally goes to part of the wall. He goes to the western half of the wall, goes all the way around to the other eastern half, and then actually goes right back and enters through that gate. He never did go to the top part. I assume actually during the three days he probably saw that. He informed others only after he knew the size of the, of the uh, situation. Verse 17, After looking at the entire situation, planning out, verse 17, Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He informs the Jews, the nobles, everyone. Actually, at that point, everyone knew the plan at that point, except the enemy. But unfortunately, some of the people were associated with the enemy, so the enemy found out. But up to that point, they didn't really know the extent of what was going to be happening. Uh, He identified himself as one of the people. Let us. Uh, He set before them a reasonable and attainable goal. Let us. (laughs) You see, he, he was like, listen, we're all in. I'm all in. Let's do this together. He assured them that God was in the project. Because in verse 18, it says, and, told, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me. Okay, God is in this. He courageously used his authority of his position. You know, he put himself there. That's, by the way, he was risking at that point. Is ministry risky? Is, 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 is uh, ministering for God risky? So he risked. Uh, he displayed confidence in God and therefore personal courage in, in uh, facing obstacles. And you see the obstacles in verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, Ammonite servant and Gershom, or Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered. They despised us. Notice he used the word us. What is, what is this thing that you are doing And yet, what did he say in verse 20? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, we his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I mean, he was courageous. He probably pointed his finger at them. And and, and this is the, the thing. He didn't get discouraged. He expected opposition. Do you expect opposition when you are working for God? I trust you understand that, you know, there's always going to be opposition. I'm talking about not from within, although that's sometimes, but I'm talking without. So, you know, you just have to say, well, you know, God has bigger purposes, right? 
So he wasn't discouraged by his opposition. Now, boy, I just went through it. It took a few minutes to do that. But see, it's important to realize that that's what was happening behind the scenes before the wall started getting built. Because sometimes you just start looking, wow, man, the impossible happened in 52 days. Wow, man. No, no, no. You had a very godly man that had, as it were, as we would say, all his ducks in a row, spiritually speaking, depending on God, using his abilities, planning it out, formulating it out, going through the right channels, you know, walking with God, kept praying, figured it out when he got there, informed the people, made sure they know that we're all in. This is not something I'm telling you to do. I'm going to be right there with you. And so we get to chapter... Three. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of the Henal, and you go on. And you just start seeing section after section after section being built. Well, let me back up and just say, uh, and we're just going to break this down um, in, in just pieces. Like I said, we'll see how far we get. But the idea is this, keys to getting a project done. And you say, boy, that sounds kind of secular. No, but think about this. By the way, this chapter has been a a life changer for me. I've had to uh, wrestle through some things. I've had to say, Lord, though I spoke certain ways at the church as far as equipping, I see that I'm not doing this. Please forgive me because this is your church, not mine. I'm just a part of this. I mean, this has been a truly life change chapter for me. And actually, we're getting together with the elders and deacons tomorrow, and some of these principles are going to be laid out at the meeting there. And, and, uh, and you say, why are you telling me all that? Well, because God wants his church run a certain way. Because we're not an organization in the sense of like a business. We are a body with all specific gifts and abilities, and God wants to see all of us flourish. So this has a lot of implications this has a lot of implications for you in your personal life, how to get a project done in your spiritual life, in the church life. I mean, there, you'll see there bleeds all over the place. Um, the first key one is this, key number one. If you're going to get a project done, you have to have manageable sections. Manageable sections. Uh, if you read through Nehemiah carefully, you find out he has, it's either 40 or 41 different heads of different sections of the wall. Okay, he, by the way, any manager would say, yeah, that's, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, th- this is not rocket science, this part. You take a big project and you break it up, right? But how he does it is very interesting. But anyways, there's, again, the, the wall of Jerusalem was about two and a half, about, probably about two and a half miles around, or circumference. circumference. Uh, he bites it up into 40 to 41 different segments. Uh, well, it goes back to, you know, how do you eat an elephant? What? One bite at a time. Right? And you just, you know. Now, I ask this question, though. But what are some of the mistakes often made in managing a project? And I'm thinking of this as me as a pastor, myself as a pastor, or just looking around. You know, what are some of the mistakes managers make? Leaders make? People that are overseeing make, what are some of the mistakes they make when they, they are seeking to lead a group of people uh, and, and maybe not you know, seeing it completely like they ought to? One thing is this, under, underestimating the task. That could be a mistake. And, and you might say, well, you know, underestimating. Well, because of inexperience, 
Maybe not knowing how long it's really going to take. Throwing out a project, thinking it's going to take this amount of time, it ends up being this much. Thinking it's going to take this amount of money, it takes this much. Thinking it's going to take this many people, and it's going to take this much. And so the reality starts to set in that the energy is not as much as we thought. We thought it was going to be more, or less energy needed to accomplish. I mean, have you ever done that? Maybe you've done that in this way. Uh, you know, January hits. You know, I really need, through the, I need to read through the Bible. That's a project. And you underestimate that that's going to take time. It's going to take 20 to 30 minutes a day, and you're going to get focused, and it's going to be hard at times, and then the sun's shining, and you have to make the decision, are you going to continue down that path? That's a project, but we sometimes underestimate the task. We can do that at church. I mean, right now, we're finishing up the new building, but there's still a number of projects. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about at the deacon's elders. We've got a kitchen to finish up. We have acoustical issues. We've got all kinds of yard work to do. Da, 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 da. And we have to be uh, like, you know, really know what the final amount of task, uh, energy. So otherwise, it won't go as smooth as it could. Okay? So that's the first one, underestimating the task. That's one of the mistakes of, you know, that some people make and they don't accomplish the project properly. Another one is this procrastination. Letting the work go until the end. Not making the hard decisions along the way. By the way, he didn't do that. He, he was very clear, and, and he did it systematically, and at the very moment he needed to tell the people he did, and he didn't procrastinate on things. By the way, sometimes students, I see some students out there, sometimes you procrastinate. You know, hey, let's face it. The professor told you the paper was going to be due the week after you get back from vacation, and you have not even started working on that yet. <laughs> I don't know. But the point is, isn't it easy to procrastinate? Oh, yeah, very easy. Another thing is this, doing the right thing in the wrong order. The right thing in the wrong order. In other words, spending time on things that should be happening later and spending time on those later things when you really have these things to see. See, I, I went over everything that he's done because he did it in the right order. He got the burden. He started praying. He had faith. He had patience, he approached the king, got the letters, took the trip, stopped, planned, looked, planned. I mean, planning is all over the place. And then he finally tells the people, and then we find that they start building. He did the right order. I was reading um, an interesting illustration of this. C.F. Henry, um, Carl F. Henry was a, 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 a great theologian. And um, back a number of years ago, a man named Doug Coy wanted to get Henry to come to the university to speak. I mean, you know, big name, speak to our group. It was a student-type-led thing. And, you know, Coy had a vision, you know, reaching the university. So he put, all, he, he put together all these things. You know, he had the vision of the university coming and maybe 2,000 people listening to Carl F. Henry. He had a planning committee. He chose a theme. He contacted the speaker. He picked the date. He reserved the hall. But on that night, he's behind the curtain. Carl, uh, Henry has, uh, C.F. Henry has come in, you know, airplane probably, and he's behind the curtain. And he looks out behind the curtain and realizes that no one, no one is in the crowd. He had forgotten to promote it. No one even knew it was happening. There's a situation where all the planning, all the vision, all the energy, all, but you've got to do first things first. 
You got to do them in the right order. See, you got to do the right things in the right order to have it come across. Sometimes we do the right things in the wrong order. Now, we find with uh, Nehemiah, he did them in the right order. And then finally, trying to do too many things at once. I find I get into this. And this is how it it plays out. One of the things I've tried to do, and and, and I become more and more consistent with this. I have my devotions and stuff in the morning at home. But when I get to church, the first thing I try to do is literally pray. Because I have found this. I go in the office. I think I'll just check a couple emails. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Oh, Facebook. I don't get on Facebook much, but oh, interesting, Facebook. Oh, that's a really interesting video that my daughter sent me. And before long, it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Oh, I was answering emails. I was doing some other stuff. But that's not the priority. That is not the priority. If you're going to get a project done, you've got to keep on task. The things that really matter... See, trying to do too many things at once. No, no, I I need to do the thing that's most important, okay? The top position, the priority thing. We we often don't run on priorities. That way, and if you don't run on your priorities, what ends up happening is this. You'll you'll get to 8 or 9 o'clock at night and say, where did all the time go? I never accomplished what I really wanted to do at 7 o'clock this morning, you know? I like uh, what Haddon Robinson, that great preacher, said. He points out that one of the old recipes for rabbit, how many of you like rabbit? You ever have rabbit? But he said one of the old recipes for rabbit started out with this injunction, first, catch the rabbit. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he knew that first things came first. One of the things that I've been really mulling over is, uh, is this whole, and I think it came from Drucker, actually. He's a secular guy, but, but I think it, it, it's a truism. If you really want to stay on course, you have to distinguish between efficiency and effectiveness. Efficiency is doing the thing right. Many of us are very efficient. We do the thing right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. Do you see the difference there? Efficiency is doing the thing right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. And if you put them together, really what we should do is uh, doing the right... right, Doing... how, How would I say this? Is doing the right thing right. Doing the right thing right. That's prayer for me in the morning. See, I could be efficient, get all my emails, and by 11 o'clock, I answered all my emails, and I've been very efficient, and I've even got this done, and I've got this done, and I've started this, but are you doing it in the power of the Spirit? Are you really depending on me? Effectiveness says, get on your knees. Start with me. Make sure that I'm guiding it. Because again, we don't want to be just efficient, we want to be effective. We want to be effective. Uh, Sometimes that means planned neglect. (laughs) Plan neglect. See, you see effectiveness with Nehemiah in this entire process. The thing he had to do, at the moment he had to do it, he did it. In her book, A Practical Guide to Prayer, Dorothy Haskins tells about a noted concert violinist who was asked the secret of her mastery of the instrument. All right, the instrument of a violin. The woman answered the question with two words. Planned neglect. Now, This is what she said. I became a great violinist because I had planned neglect. 
She explained, there were many things that used to demand my time. When I went to my room after breakfast, I made my bed, straightened the room, dusted, did whatever else necessary. When I finished my work, I turned to my violin practice. That system prevented me from accomplishing what I should have on the violin. So I reversed things. I deliberately planned to neglect everything else until my practice period was complete. And that program of planned neglect is the secret of my success. You know, that principle goes right into uh, Scripture. I mean, as far as, that's a spiritual principle, right? You need to plan neglect. There are all kinds of options, all kinds of uh, possibilities in your life. You know, especially now with all this media coming in and all the, you know, the Facebook, and now what do we have? Twitter, and you have emails, which I'm being told is is going out. I can't believe that. I just started doing it, now it's gone already. (laughs) And all those other, by the way, we're having a social media thing. You're saying, why are you doing that? Well, if you want to be connected, you know, but the point is you got to plan neglect. You've got to look at your life and you, and you say this. You have way more hours to do things than you have ability, right? I mean, you have all this stuff out there. And you've got to plan neglect to say, well, what is most important? What is most important? So again, you want to do first things first and then do them one at a time. In other words, prioritize. Prioritize. Sometimes it's planned neglect is what I mean. These priorities need to be tackled one at a time. There's a, there's a very famous story. I've read it actually in a number of books. But the story goes like this. And I, The guy I'm going to tell you was an ungodly guy. His, his name was Charles Schwab. He was the president of Bethlehem Steel. But the point was is he had this guy come in, Ivy Lee. He was a time management guru or something, time consultant. And... Schwab basically wanted to get Lee to tell him, you know, how can I get my plant to work more efficiently? You know, how can I get my managers to do a better job? And Mr. Lee asserted that if the management of Bethlehem Steel would follow his advice, the company's operations would be improved and their, profit, and their profits increased. So Schwab responded by this, if you show, me, show us a way to get more things done, I'll be glad to listen And if it works, I will pay you whatever you want if it's within reason. Well, Lee handed him a blank piece of paper and said this, quote, write down the most important things you have to do tomorrow. Just write them down. Mr. Schwab did so. Now, Lee continued, number them in order of importance. Schwab did that. Tomorrow morning, start on number one and stay with it until you have completed it. By the way, that's where we fail. (laughs) We don't complete it. How many of you have like hundreds of unfinished tasks? Don't. <laughs> then go on to number two, number three, number four. And I know some mothers out there, but I can't, I've got to change my, di- uh, my daughter's diaper. Well, that becomes a priority. Don't worry if you haven't completed everything by the end of the day. At least you have completed the most important project. Do this every day. And after you have been convinced of the value of the system, have your men try it. Pass it on to them. Try it as long as you like. And then when you are thoroughly convinced, send me what you think it's worth. Didn't even give him a price. And some weeks later, he sent him. Schwab sent him a check. And this was back in the 1930s. For a check for $25,000. That was a huge amount in the 1930s. Because he realized what was happening is the unimportant, the tyranny of the urgent was, was, uh, was robbing him 
of really keeping on priority. Now, again, you say, but that was a business. No, no, that's how we need to be in our own spiritual lives. You want to walk with God? Do you realize we are as close to God as we want to be? Because he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The fullness of the Spirit is in us. But we have a tendency to walk in our own flesh. It's got to be a priority. So, to wrap all this up, um, the first major thing is a manageable section, and we were looking at some of the things that kind of break away from uh, actually getting the, the job done. By the way, when it came to the wall, the first thing that had to happen was the entire wall. You know what the next thing happened is in chapter 8, and that is that there was a revival that broke out with the people. But, but you know what? Nehemiah knew this. If he had tried to do the revival before the wall, the enemies would have destroyed Israel, the Jews. He had to get the wall up, but as soon as that wall was finished, he brought him right into the spiritual side. Okay, so it was all one big project. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, so we got to do it one thing at a time. No, key number two, he made individual assignments, or to say it this way, to each a task. To each a task. During the defense of the Philippine Bataan Peninsula in World War II, one of the commanding officers lined up a company of his men. I mean, if you can picture this long, long company, and he basically gave them a very dangerous assignment, and he said, I need, I need one man for this assignment. He happened to be reading a memo while he said it, so he said, I, I'm, I'm, it's a very dangerous assignment, but I, I want one man. He, he, he uh, uh, looked down at his memo for one moment, and then looked up again and say, ah, there is no one that wants to volunteer. To which his subordinate said, no, sir, the whole line stepped forward. Now, I like that because that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. When Nehemiah laid out the plan, everyone, st- everyone except one stepped forward. It was the whole line stepped forward. Um, so we see some different things here. He made individual assignments. First of all, he delegated the responsibility with authority. You, you, again, we're going to see this in just a minute, how he broke it all down. And I started thinking about this. Delegated the responsibility, responsibility of the project with the authority to get it down, done. Now again, these are 40 different segments. Can you imagine putting 40 different types of people doing the same wall? You know this, that he had to have done this. Uh, guys, I, I'm sure he brought the heads together and he said, okay, now we're going to do the wall and I'm going to assign it, but I just want you to know that these are some of the, the primers on doing a wall. Got to be this wide, we're going to go to this height. Because some people would be saying, well, I think five-foot wall would be fine. Well, I think a seven-foot wall would be fine. Well, I think a 13-foot wall would be fine. No, he brought them together as the leader and assigned the task. So he delegated the responsibility with authority and I believe this, with the parameters. I mean, just think about a wall. And by the way, they were using material that had been broken down, fallen. Some of the wall was still there. There was pieces of the wall that's still there. A lot of it had been burned. A lot of it was in the, the valleys, mixed in with all the trees that had grown and stuff like that. He had, to, he had to delegate. He had to delegate the responsibility with the authority, with the proper boundaries or parameters of the project. Because once he started, all he did is he let them go, and then I think he just walked around the wall making sure that everything, you know, putting out like little fires type of thing. So, 
You say, um, I like what D.L. Moody says, it is better to get ten men to do the work than to do the work of ten men. Amen to that. I think that's why it's so important as far as, uh, you know, the body of believers. What are we supposed to be here? We're supposed to all be working. I would encourage you to ask this question yourself. What, do you, what, do you, what are you doing to minister to the body of Christ? What are you doing to minister to the body of Christ here at Alfred Almond? Because again, we should all be ministering to one another. That's why I have found this, um, this study so interesting. Because when a person says, I want to minister, then you've got to be able to delegate to them the responsibility and the authority, which is the power, the freedom to accomplish that within the parameters. Uh, this is a point of confession. At times, I have micromanaged. Can any of you believe that? I can't believe that. I'm glad that you're loving towards me. But in doing that, I have squelched creativity. I have squelched spiritual gift. I've actually robbed you of opportunity. I told the elders last week, I said, I have repented of all that. I really, I really want to be just one of the people, one of the leaders that really sees people's spiritual gifts flourish. And I know if that's going to happen, you've got to have, this is the responsibility this is the power and freedom to accomplish that within these parameters. Because you can't have, you know, we still are a, a group going in the same direction, right? But do you see how that works? I mean, I, and I've looked at my calling as a pastor, and I've looked at other churches, and I've realized this is a, this is a, um, a common pitfall of pastors, okay? But, but you know what? It's hard because you do want to see the body go in the same direction, right? You don't want one over here. Yeah, I think, I think we should have the color this. And I, no, no, no. We've got to work so that the elders are really overseeing. By the way, this is not me. This is the elders, plural. But then as people want to use their gifts and abilities and everything else, that the responsibility and the authority and the uh, parameters are set up. In fact, you can remember it like this, rap. Always make sure if you want to do a ministry in our church that you know the rap. The responsibilities, you've given the authorities with the parameters. I thought that was pretty cute. None of you even got it. <laughs> what a... <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Let's get back to the text. Okay, because of that, there was shared enthusiasm. Shared enthusiasm. Nehemiah got everyone involved. I mean, it's just amazing to see the number and the types of people. It's so reminiscent of the church. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower said this, Leadership is the ability to get a person to do what you want him to do, what? When you want it done, in a way that you need it to be done, because he wants to do it. He wants to do it. That's enthusiasm. That's, that's the body saying, yes, we're moving in this direction. I mean, look at verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest. Now, that's a high priest with his brother and the priest. In verse 28, we see that other priests are working. Verse 17, Levites were working. What could, a, what could a priest say at that point? That's not my job. That's not my calling. I'm not going to be hauling a block. What else do we have here? Verse 2. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, verse 2. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. Jericho was, Jericho was 17 miles away. They could have said, it's none of my problem. And yet the men of Jericho came up. The men of Tekoa. Gibeon, Mizpah, you see all these men. 
Zano, Beth Haken, Beth Zur. I mean, all these different groups came from different areas to help out in the project. Look at uh, verse 8. You have skilled craftsmen next to him, Uziel. A goldsmith. Now, a goldsmith had to, have, had to have delicate hands. You know what he could have? This could have been his excuse. I'm not going to haul a block. What if I hurt my hands? Then you had perfumers made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem. That's found, I think, in verse 8. I mean, but they sacrificed their delicate hands to do God's work. Verse uh, number 4 uh, in verses 7 and 9. City officials. Rephiah, a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. Verse 12, Shalom, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, the other half. Then you have in verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you see rulers. By the way, rulers working right beside the poor and the middleman. Pulled them in. In verse 12, you see Shalom, Shalom, ruler of half of Jerusalem, and his daughters. They got women involved. Women weren't called to do heavy labor. Women got involved, his daughters. Verse 26, the temple servants living near Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate. By the way, that was where they lived. This is the other thing you'll find out. He appoints people near their homes to fix the wall. Why? Personal investment. By the way, do you look at that when it comes to this body? Ah, this is just the church we go to. Or do you see it? No, this is my body. I mean, this is our body. This is, we, we will sacrifice for each other because we are members one of another, Romans says. Romans 12, verse 4 and 5. Members one of another. We are interconnected. Are you willing to sacrifice for the body of believers here? Become a stakeholder. A city guards, verse 29, the keeper of the eastern gate. Verse 32, merchants. They're going to trade, they're going to work. I mean, you see, again, eight different categories at least of people. Everything from priests and high priests to women to rulers. Obviously, you had everyone else, the, the poor. You had the merchants, the temple servants. You didn't get everyone, though. Not 100% involvement. I like that, that uh, general that asked for the volunteer. Because in verse 5, it says the Tekoahites, uh, they worked. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. <laughs> the nobles. I like how Frank uh, Tilpaw commenting on the, this verse. He said it this way. Uh, there are always a few turkeys in the bunch. The nobles were the turkeys. I, I find it interesting how the scriptures put it. Would not stoop to serve their Lord. But most of the, the people were willing. In fact, you even find uh, the Tekoites, 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 ah, whatever. But if you go to verse 27, it says that they repaired another section. It's almost, I, don't, I, I can't prove this, but it's almost like, well, those bums won't do it, but we'll do it. Bums being the nobles. Okay. Again, so reminiscent of the Ephesians chapter 4. Jesus gave gifts to the church. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave shepherd leaders, Ephesians 4.11. What? For the equipping of the saints, right? Why? 
for the work of ministry. And the idea is this. The leaders need to equip so that we all do the work of ministry. Why? So that the body would be edified, built up. That's why I love chapter 3. Everyone pitched in except for a few turkeys. I would not call you a turkey if you're not serving. But the point is, is this. They all pitched in. They all worked together. Because they, it was all about their precious Jerusalem. And you know what happened there? People need to be needed. Isn't that true? Again, I, one of the things I've repented of is realizing sometimes, you know, I've robbed because people need to be needed. We, we're all, we are all needed. Not just John, not just Lee and, and Mike and the elders and the deacons and the missions committee and a few teachers and a few other leaders out there. We are all needed. We don't want to steal the ministry from someone. So understand that when we see these 40 segments, that's the leaders. Each leader had all these people helping him to accomplish his part in the wall. Uh, uh, Finally, let me just give out one more. A coordinated effort. If you you look, look at this. uh, Chapter 3, then Elisha, you know, he consecrated it. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred. And then what's starting in verse 2, and next to him. So you find that, okay, where he stopped, the next one started. No gap. Second part of verse 3, and next to him. Verse 4, next to them. Second part of verse 4, next to them. Next to them. Next to them. And you go on and on and next to them and next to them. And every part of that wall was being accomplished. No gaps. Everyone was working in unison. Until you get to verse 15, and if you look at a map, I should have had it up there. If you look in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, they go all the way down to the Dung Gate, I think it was. And then, then uh, uh, Nehemiah is uh, commenting on the rest of the eastern side of the wall. And he starts using this word, verse 16, after him, verse 17, after him, next to him, after him, after him. I counted them all up, I think it's 30 times. 30 times. There was a major point here that Nehemiah is making. Everyone was needed and there was no gaps. Everyone was needed. And the wall got done, the Mission Impossible got done in 52 days because everyone pitched in and there was nobody that said, well, I'm not going to worry about that piece of the wall. Next to him, next to him, next to him. They were... Many were assigned or chose parts of the wall in front or directly adjacent to their house. Because if you look at uh, verse 1 and 28, it says the priests rebuilt the temple. The temple servants in verse 26, the area near their dwelling. So they were told to go and uh, in verse 10 it says opposite his house. Verse 23, opposite their house. Um, I think you find this. It was not only a coordinated effort, not only was there no gaps... But, you know, Nehemiah had a mind for people, and he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them to build either at their location where they live or very close to, if at all possible. See, some of these guys were from, like I said, Jericho and stuff. But if, if there was a person that was going to be living in Jerusalem, that's where I want him to build that wall. Why? Stakeholder. Man, I'm going to make make sure those blocks never get beat, you know, uh, uh, destroyed by the enemy. I'm going to make sure that that's going to be safety for my family. 
That's how we should look at the church of Jesus Christ. I don't even mean the local. I'm saying the universal. Hey, I'll do whatever it takes for the body of Christ. I will walk strong. I will walk pure. I will, I will be a good sheep because he is the great shepherd. I will sacrifice for his sheep because he gave his precious blood. But it also, in the process of doing that, is helping me, right? Strong body, protection for me as well. So again, this type of mentality, he had great concern for his workers. By the way, you wouldn't want to have a person working up there if he lived at the bottom of the mile and a half, you know, because the whole thing was two and a half miles. You know, you'd be walking, and, and you'll find that at, uh, next chapter there was the enemy that wanted to destroy. And he had, they had to be ready to fight. So that's a good internal motivation. And then, uh, let me just end, since... I know I, I don't want to lie to you, but I only have one more very minor point. We can be done. I can go on to chapter 4 next week. The next key is this, recognition for each uh, worker. Recognition. He recognized the accomplishment of each worker. Well, how, how do you mean? Well, not each worker, but, I mean, 40 of them. You know, if, if your name was, um, well, if your name was Sand Ballot, you wouldn't want to be mentioned. But if your name was Eliashib, it's nice that, you know, he was one of the leaders. And Nehemiah recognized him. And his work group. I think recognition is needed. I think great leaders knows how to show recognition. I, I got something in the mail from a company, uh, a business in the Hornell area, and they were highlighting uh, a person that had worked for them, I think, for 13 or 14 years. They were not even working with them any longer, but they were recognizing the service. You know what that does for the rest of the people in that office? Man, they, he, he, he knows what I do. So recognition is important. Uh, Each was known. We can be sure of this, one uh, author said. As he made the rounds of the builders, he called each by name and praised him for what he or she was achieving. But you know what you don't find in this entire scenario? Nehemiah's name. You don't see Nehemiah. He wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar. Is not this this great Babylon which I have built? You don't even see him mentioned He's not there. I think he's a, a, true, um, a true trophy of humility. He just wanted to see God praised. He just wanted to see God's people protected. He was willing to sacrifice whatever it took to get that done, and he didn't need an ounce of praise in the process. And actually, the book itself was written by um, Ezra. So... So again, he was a self-sacrificial man. Self-sacrificial man. So as I wrapped all this up, I came out with seven P's. (laughs) Seven P's to really have an effective ministry. Prayer. Plus planning. Plus parameters. In other words, as you give work out to people, you've prayed, you've planned, and now you're able to give them the responsibility, the authority, and the parameters, the wrap. You've got to get the wrap. If we're able to do that as leaders, that, number four, produces, <laughs> that produces something. That produces performance, and I mean that in a good sense. In other words, harmony and unity. It also produces production. The wall was built in 52 days. And finally, it produces a lot of praise, not pain. See, 
There wasn't pain. You know when there's pain when, was when there was bad communication. You set somebody doing something, they start going down the path, and then as a leader, oh, no, 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 you're going the wrong direction. But if you do it the proper way, there's production, and you can, and you've laid out the parameters, just say within the parameters, and I'm sure he was going around to the wall, Elisha, man, you're doing really good. Shalom, man, you are excellent. Oh, your, your daughters are doing really good too. You know, over here, the goldsmith, I know it's a tough thing and you're really sacrificing, but man, you're doing a really good job. And none of this, you know what, your, your wall is not too high. No, do you see how that happens? You do it the right way and you can praise and you don't have to go through that painful situation of someone who is excited but then they're starting to say, man, I don't, know, I don't know if I want to work for that guy. Because he wrote out these parameters, but now he keeps changing things. So again, in your own life, if you're a leader, be careful. It's tough stuff to lead, isn't it? And by the way, it's not so easy to follow, especially if it's a bad leader. But again, what does Jesus Christ want? Pastors, elders, to equip, so we all do the work of the ministry, so we all, including us, what? A build-up. Got to be built-up to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we close. Are we, do we have... We're going to be able to praise our Lord.